I mean, it was just tremendous. The lessons they give us, right and left, all those musicians, it was really glorious. I could hardly control my emotions. And what about that prayer from Isaiah? Do you relate to that? Isaiah 64, 1. Do you ever pray that? Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. Do you ever feel that? Okay, you need to think about it. <laughs> because maybe if you don't pray that way, you should. That was Isaiah's prayer. Historically, multiple cultures and legends have evidenced a similar kind of longing for God. A longing for God, in fact, to show up on the scene. That was fertile ground in the human heart for what God himself actually wanted to do. He wanted to come and become one of us for our sakes. God actually wanted to do that, to incarnate himself in our race, become part of our history. God wanted to do that. But humanity could never have guessed that that was in his plan. We could never have guessed incarnation. C.S. Lewis put it very well when he said, Reality is, in fact, usually something you could not have guessed. That is one of the reasons I believe Christianity. It is a religion you could not have guessed. If it offered us just the kind of universe we had always expected, I should feel we were making it up. But in fact, it is not the sort of thing anyone would have made up. It has just that unusual twist about it that real things have. So let us leave behind all these boys' philosophies. I think he means these infantile, childish philosophies. These oversimple answers. The problem is not simple. And the answer is not going to be simple either. Do we get that? The answer to our dilemma would not be simple because we are complex creatures <laughs> and we have complicated our world history and our personal history in many ways. When we try to oversimplify, there are many things we're going to miss out on. So this is good advice from C.S. Lewis, as usual, what we would expect from him. No. You know, the Greeks, for all their poetry and drama, for all their philosophy and learning, they never imagined the possibility of incarnation. Zeus, for example. Oh, yeah, he took on different forms, but he never took on human nature. He never became one of us. He just took on appearances to disguise himself in order to, normally, to seduce some maiden that he had been attracted to. 
And does anyone defend the historicity of Greek mythology? Of course not. <laughs> it wouldn't occur to anyone to try to defend the Greek myths as if they had really happened back there somewhere. And Greek thought it was either anthropomorphosis or apotheosis, one or the other. Anthropomorphosis, well, the gods taking on human form, not becoming human. Do you see the difference? They would just disguise themselves. A disguise, basically, but not becoming human. Or apotheosis, humans being raised to the level of gods. That's all you have with Greeks. But never incarnation. And yet, on the other hand, the Gospels have often been held up as prime examples of Greco-Roman biographies. A perfect example of that genre. Because the authors of those Gospels wanted believers, wanted readers to believe that the things they recorded really happened. It was history. It was history, sorry. It was historical testimony that they were writing. They had been eyewitnesses of it or careful firsthand investigators of it in Luke's case. So in several places in the Old Testament, we find the scriptures reflecting this ancient longing, which in the Bible is basically like, basically like a promise from God, longing that God would show up in our earthly setting, in our personal situations. You remember Job? He was practically drowning in grief. He was so sorrowful over the trials that he was suffering. So many losses. So all he could think about was how urgent it was for him to have a face-to-face -face -face encounter with God. He desperately needed God to explain some things to him. Things that were just beyond his understanding. You have any of those in your life? Hope so. Because life can be so full of painful things sometimes that just don't make any sense. Need more light, more perspective, more clarity. A clarity that can really only come from beyond this world, which is so full of injustices that just don't seem to have a solution. You know, you look around you, and we see a lot of that, don't we? So, in Job's story, it seemed like a theology of retribution was dominating everybody's mind. Remember how his friends all accused him? Oh, you've done this, you've done that. You've done something. That's why this has come upon you. The theology of retribution. Everything reduced to pure mathematics, legalism, Pharisaic moralism. You do this, and God will do that. You do the other, and God will do the other. Is God, does God work on that kind of basic mathematics? Is that the way life works for you? Job didn't believe that. He just couldn't accept that. He was suffering unbearable pain and misery, and he couldn't come up with anything that he had done to actually deserve this 
or to have caused this. It just didn't make sense. So he alone objected to this way of thinking and explaining life's dilemmas. Because he needed a real theology of suffering. That could embrace all the tragedies and scars he carried on his soul. And then provide him some real comfort. But if you remember the book of Job, if you haven't read it lately, it's a trial in itself just to get through it. Eh? (laughs) It's long, tough reading. But if you remember that story, it's only when God shows up, he actually shows up at the end of the book. He shows up on the scene, and that's when we finally get some resolution to all these tensions. But it's only at the end It's only when God actually comes. Okay, so who's next? King David. He felt the same way as Job. As he dealt with all his enemies, especially King Saul. You remember King Saul? How he pursued him and persecuted him for seven years trying to kill him. And so David's longing was for God to show up with power and vindication accompanied by hailstones, thunder, bolts of lightning. That's how David wanted God to show up. That was Psalm 18, Psalm 144. He wanted him to show up with smoking mountains, lightning, arrows. That would make for a great rescue, wouldn't it? A strong deliverance. Is that what you dream of? Is that what we like to imagine in our personal situations that are not pleasing? Some kind of spectacular display of God's favor and power on our behalf. Oh, thank you, Lord. That would be so wonderful. A few centuries after David, we get the prophet Isaiah. I think he was basically echoing David's feelings because, you know, he was several centuries after David. He did have those psalms. He could read them. And so Isaiah, too, was longing for the same kind of divine intervention with heavens torn apart, God making this dramatic entrance that would include trembling mountains, quaking nations, awesome things on behalf of his people. Oh, boy. That would make us feel good, wouldn't it? God came right to our parking lot and said, This church, this is where it's happening. Oh, wow. (laughs) Wow, we would think amazing. Or on your doorstep, the lottery. Toma ya. (laughs) And you didn't even buy a lottery ticket, I'm sure. (laughs) Oh, we have so many situations where we would like for God to... Show up in our mess, in our disasters. Young people, maybe it's this exam I didn't have time to study for. Oh, please help me pass it anyway. Yeah. Oh, that would be God showing up powerfully, wouldn't it? Or rescue me from these hurtful people. Just come, get these bullies out of my life. Or tangled feelings, disappointments. 
bad working conditions, difficult living conditions, debts. Oh, wow. This money that just showed up in my bank account. God must have done it. It would be so nice, wouldn't it? Or the interminable waiting for documents, for people, for the right job, for my health issues, etc., etc. Who hasn't got along, etc. In which we would love for God just to show up, make His power available to us, so that we can accomplish the changes that we need when we need them. Oh God, that would be heaven. That's right. <laughs> you know, it's why we need to take time out at Christmas to really think about how God actually chose to make his entrance. It wasn't anything like that, was it? It was such a small, humble form that no one would even recognize him as liberator. Well, except those shepherds. I mean, they had a, a hint from the angels, didn't they? But in fact, the all-powerful one was showing his omnipotent hand just not the way David had asked for it or Isaiah or Job. Actually, by making himself weak and vulnerable just like us so that he could bring about this revolutionary deliverance the one we most needed, but we could have never dreamed of. Because we do realize what his aim was. His, his goals, his aims were so much higher and greater than ours. His aim was to rescue us from the power of sin. That was our real problem. The power of the evil one. That was our real enemy. The power of death. That was our greatest fear. Yeah. He had big goals for us. We would have been satisfied with just, oh, fix this little situation that's causing me pain. Right? God's eyes were set on a much higher goal. And for this kind of rescue, God knew that he would have to come and do it himself. Yeah. He knew he would have to show up on the scene to give us the kind of rescue we needed. Isaiah foretold it more than once. Those passages in his prophecy about your God will come. He will come to rescue you. He will come. God himself. Even though God knew perfectly well that what would happen when he came in such a vulnerable way. Oh, yes, he knew. But he was so longing to fully identify with you and me in our neediness. He knew how desperately we needed rescue, a true deliverer. So that means he didn't come with shields and defenses raised. He didn't come with barriers to protect himself from us. He didn't come with armors and weapons against us. No. He came fully vulnerable with the same flesh as we have, the same blood, 
The same inner makeup with the image of God stamped on a human soul ready to do business with us on our turf in our terms. And he knew perfectly well that it would be a showdown. Yeah. Do we understand showdown? Una confrontación decisiva. Like in the Old West, when you had two big rivals and they showed up on the street at opposite ends of the street, each with their gun ready. That's a showdown. God knew that's what was coming. Because the prince of this world would stir up sinful hearts to do their very worst to the one who was coming to rescue us. This is the air. That was the whisper that echoed down enemy lines. Let's get him. And then the vineyard will be all ours. You remember the parable, right? That Jesus told about the owner of the vineyard who sent all these messengers and finally sent his own son who was killed. Well, that's what the rulers of those days thought. And that's what the rulers of our day think, too. Kill the Christians. Persecute the Christians. In our culture, it's more like, kill Christianity. Discredit it. Water it down. There is a fierce movement of foot in our society to do that. I trust you're aware of it. So today... May we just contemplate the vulnerability of God. Will you notice how gently he parted the heavens for our sakes? Not with all that violence, tearing them apart, but very gently he parted the heavens, reducing himself to a mere speck, a microscopic Lowly fetus. Wow. An innocent baby. It was the word become wordless. Yeah. The omnipotent one made helpless infant. It was the omniscient one not even knowing his Aleph Beth Gimel. That's the Hebrew alphabet. Wow. It was the omnipresent one being limited to a tiny, finite space of a feeding, feed trough. In fact, have you ever thought about how vulnerable he made himself to you? Yeah, to us, to our preferences, to our will. Mm hmm. Think about it. Vulnerable to your will and what you decide. That's also what he was doing in the incarnation. Think with me about this famous verse. In fact, you can say it with me, okay? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son so that whoever believes in him 
should not perish but have everlasting life. Did you know that's a Christmas verse? <laughs> it says right there. He gave. It was the biggest giving that happened in all of history. He gave his son. And what did that mean? What, how do we translate that? What does it mean practically? Mark 14, 41 translates it for us. The son of man was delivered into our hands, into the hands of sinners. We got it? And what did we sinners do with him? You see, we can't distance ourselves from what those sinners back then did to him because in our hearts we too rejected his authority over us, his rule. It was the same sin, the one that was being committed there at the cross against our Savior as what you and I have done whenever we have chosen our own way. Maybe we thought, oh, I just wanted to do it my way or do what everybody else is doing. Just thought I would try something different. Just got tired of always trying to be good. Hmm. In my youthfulness, I think that was a big motivation. Tired of being good. I want to try something else for a change. I didn't mean to be doing something against God. I was just rejecting his rule. Just telling him, don't be the ruler of the universe. At least not mine. That was our primal sin. Scripture says he suffered all the same kinds of temptations and testing that you and I have to go through. Yet, without sin. He practiced grace and truth all the time, every day of his life. This innocent Galilean Jew who was condemned by the political machinery of his day, the Jewish aristocracy in conspiracy with the big powerhouse of Rome. And do you remember what he said when they came to arrest him? He said he could call 12 legions of angels if he so desired to defend him. Did you ever think maybe those were the same angels that showed up on that Judean hillside announcing his birth to the shepherds? Wow, that was a glorious lot, wasn't it? Think of these kids that were up here on the stage singing to us. Multiply it by several thousand to those angels, don't you think they would have been happy, more than happy, to come to his rescue at that moment? No, he chose not to call on them in that occasion, in that showdown. He chose instead to keep on representing perfectly the heart of his father in human flesh. And he would do that by loving God with all his heart, and his fellow man as himself. And the only way he could keep doing that was by laying down his life in the face of our rebellion, submitting to our mutiny and humiliation and brutality, dying the death of slaves and criminals 
which we imposed on him, and identifying in this way with the weak, the oppressed of this world. Do you see what Jesus was doing there? He was living out his vulnerability to its ultimate consequences. Ultimate consequences. The durability of his reign had to be tested against the toughest possible earthly circumstances. His reign. He was reigning on that cross, you know. That was the throne that we gave him. And he reigned there. His reign had to be tested against the worst. The purity of his heart had to pass the fiercest test that the enemy could throw at him. The vulnerable love of God had to be proven against the worst that humanity could do to him. That was there on the cross. That was the culmination of Bethlehem. And at Christmas we can never forget how these two go together. In Matthew's gospel, Jesus affirmed this vulnerability in terms of gentleness. That's when he invited us to come and take his yoke upon us and learn from him. Remember how he said, for I am gentle and humble in heart. Or Matthew also reminds us of the Old Testament prophecy about the Messiah being unusually Gentle. Isaiah 42 says, He will not quarrel. If you can see it well enough, read it with me, okay? He will not quarrel or shout or raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break. A smoldering wick he will not snuff out. In faithfulness he will bring forth justice. He will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice on the earth and the nations will put their hope in his name. Justice? What justice did he establish on that cross? He established the justice of right relatedness. Pick up on this. It's the Old Testament meaning of justice. To be rightly related to God and your neighbor. So how did he establish this justice between God and neighbor? He did it gently. Pick up on the word. He did it gently. By loving God with his whole being and loving all his neighbors to the last drop of blood. He was establishing justice, establishing the true reign of God in human flesh. Because you see, that kind of justice can't be imposed. You can't force it on anybody. Loving God and neighbor has to come from the inside, doesn't it? So that means God knew all along that the only true liberation for us would have to come from the inside out, right? And he also knew that forcing his way in would not bring a true change of heart. 
our insides needed a total reseteo, a total reset, rebirth, a spiritual revolution. But you see, it would only happen if we invited him in, letting him rule inside our hearts as the way, the truth, and the life. And that, of course, also meant adopting his cross as our lifestyle. So you see, his vulnerability would actually become our salvation and our model to follow. Because real liberation doesn't just mean God with us. We looked at that a couple of weeks ago. Emmanuel. We know it means God with us. In Jesus, God came to be with us. But real liberation isn't just, doesn't just happen because God is with us. Last week, we talked about how liberation also involves God for us. Deus pro nobis, we talked about. How important is that? Really important. But it's not just God for us that brings real liberation, is it? No. It's God in us. Dios en nosotros. Dwelling in us. Ruling in us. Teaching us to walk step by step with him. Teaching us his love language from inside. Teaching, guiding us gently from the inside. Do we get it? I don't know if your language group is up there. I hope so. <laughs> there might be one that was missed. But that's the key. God with us. God for us. God in us. Puritan pastor Jonathan Edwards said, Gentleness is the true Christian spirit. All who are truly godly and real disciples of Christ have a gentle spirit in them. Wow, we need to cultivate that, don't we? Especially at Christmas. That's what Jesus wants to teach us from the inside. It's the way he came. It's the way he lived. It's the way he died. Even the apostles often reminded the early church of Jesus' gentleness. Remember Paul's words in 2 Corinthians 10.1. He said, by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, I appeal to you. And by that same meekness and gentleness, I appeal to you today to let him in. Confess his name. Open your heart to him and become vulnerable to his gentle rule from inside. Let him be your shepherd. This, my friends, is what Christmas is about. 
Will you pray with me? Holy Savior, this we want to confess. We need you to rule our unruly hearts. Come, Lord Jesus. Take control. Take the reins of our hearts, our minds. Give us that inner reset, rebirth that only you can bring so that we might be agents of your peace, your truth and grace, your gentleness in this world. We pray in Jesus' name.